2006, February 22nd. Today is Lecture 33, Einstein's Universe, which will begin in just a moment. Start up today's lecture. Now, this is the third lecture in a series that I've been giving to try to get you all up to speed on the notion of space and time. And in the first day, we looked at special relativity and then saw how Einstein generalized relativity to include a theory of gravity by including the role of the curvature of space and time as what the agency is that transmits what, you would, what Newton would have called a gravitational force. In fact, relativity actually completely gets rid of the whole notion of force itself, or at least redefines it in a very different way, in a very surprising way. And what we're going to now ask the question is, well, having now found a more correct view of the universe, a way of expressing the laws of nature that explain a lot of otherwise inexplicable phenomena, Newton simply couldn't deal with. Einstein's theory of special and general relativity are extremely successful. The global positioning satellite system would not work if we didn't take into account the fact that clocks run at different rates at different distances from a large mass because of the local curvature of space-time. They run at different rates because they're moving at orbital speed relative to a ground station. We can't explain certain effects that we see in subatomic physics. We can't explain certain observations in the heavens like the precession of Mercury or the bending of starlight using Newton's laws. It simply doesn't work. Newton's laws begin to break down. In fact, we find that Newton's laws are really an approximation to general relativity in the case of things moving very slow relative to the speed of light or relatively weak gravity fields. So we have to worry about relativity when we deal with very strong gravity fields or places where things are moving very fast. But it also gives us a way of looking at space and time as actually something we call space-time. It's a four-dimensional entity, the three dimensions of space and one dimension of time, which I can't point to with my arms because time is what we feel psychologically flowing forward. It's a strange way of looking at the world, but it's a highly successful one. What we want to look at today are some of the implications of viewing the world through the prism of Einstein's relativity, and so that's why today's lecture is entitled Einstein's Universe. The key ideas today, and we're going to stick to those aspects of relativity that are relevant to the study of the entire universe. We're going to start with something called the cosmological principle. The cosmological principle stated very simply is that the universe is homogeneous and isotropic on very, very large scales. It's kind of an extension of the Copernican idea that there's no special places or directions in space that I look. Just like Copernicus said the Earth is not in a special place, the center of the solar system, so too we're going to find that a consequence of looking at the world is our place where the sun happens to be is not a particularly special location. That if I, and if I look in any direction from the sun, the universe doesn't look all that different on the largest scales. And we'll see what the difference between large scale and local means here to us in a second. This helps to inform us how we begin to ask the question of what the evolution of the universe is, what the physics of space and time is as it changes through the history of the universe. One of the interesting predictions, one of the most surprising predictions of the general theory of relativity is that Newton viewed space and time as kind of a blank framework, sort of a background against which physics played out. But in fact, what Einstein showed was that space and time are part and parcel of the universe themselves. And in fact, space and time itself are dynamic, they're physical. Not, not physical in the sense of I can reach out and grab it, but they're part of the, part of the whole universe itself. And as a consequence of this dynamism, you have one of the most surprising predictions of all. 
that the universe should be expanding or even contracting. The universe should be dynamic. It's not just sitting there static like the old Newtonian rigid framework with its universal clock at every corner. This led to Einstein's greatest mistake. He drew back from the prediction of a dynamic universe, modified his equations of general relativity to stop the universe from either expanding or contracting, and so doing, missed making probably the greatest prediction of all. So we'll see a little bit about how that worked historically and what the, what the intellectual basis of this is, because this now explains what we will be going on to in the next two lectures to talk about the discovery and understanding of the expanding universe. We're beginning a study of something called cosmology. Cosmology is basically the study of the universe, and it breaks down into a series of categories. The first thing is it's the study of the physics of the universe. How does space and time work dynamically? It also comes down to the study of how objects are distributed through the universe. Do I find them all by themselves, isotropically distributed, or are they organized into large-scale structures like groups and clusters, superclusters, and filaments and voids? It also comes down to the motion, study of the motions of objects through the universe and how those relate to the dynamics of the universe itself. And then it comes down to, once we've gotten from a description, basically where the objects are distributed in space, the physics is sort of that describe it and the how does it work questions. We can then actually begin to address the third and most difficult question of science. How does it evolve? How did the universe form? How does it evolve? How does it unfold in its structure and time? And perhaps even, what is, its, what is its fate? That allows us to ask questions like, how old is the universe? What was its origin? What was it like in its earliest phases? And what will it be like in the distant future? All of these are the provenance of cosmology, and it's what we're going to be studying over the next two weeks. Now, to understand the context of how relativity is applied to the universe, we really do have to take an historical approach. Relativity, as we understand it, was Relative, general relativity was formulated primarily in 1917. It was a series of papers from 1915 through 1917. But you have to understand that we're looking back on relativity through the perspective of the entire 20th century. We already know most of the answers. But in 1917, when Einstein put forward general relativity, the universe was a very different place in appearance to us. We've already seen some of this history. For example, in the year 1917 was the year that Kapteyn's was very close to the time when Kapteyn's model of the Milky Way was published. And a lot of astronomers favored that as the model of the Milky Way. They viewed the Milky Way as the entire universe. It was basically a single system of stars. And we were a little off-center, but not too far away. Not all astronomers agreed on this. There was a long-standing disagreement in 1917 on the nature of the spiral nebulae. There was one camp that said they were basically immense forming star clusters within our own Milky Way basically the nebular hypothesis, and there were those who said they were, in fact, other Milky Ways far away, the so-called island universe hypothesis. In 1917, that question had not been resolved. In fact, it would not be resolved by Hubble for almost another 10 years. The other thing in 1917 is that this is the point where we were just getting the first good period luminosity relationships for R. Lyrae's and Cepheid variables. It wasn't very good yet, but it was just starting to get to the point those stars could be used as tools to measure cosmic distances. And indeed, it was going to be the discovery of Cepheids in the Andromeda galaxy that was to allow Hubble to resolve this second question on the nature of the spiral nebulae as other island universes. But in 1917, all of that story we spooled out over the last previous couple of weeks was still unknown. It was still, be, it was still in play. 
So this was Einstein's view of the universe when he went to his fellow astro the astronomers, he was a physicist, went to his astronomers there in, G in Geneva where he was, and asked, well, what is, it wasn't in Geneva, it was in Zurich. Um, he asked, well, what was the state of the universe? What should I be seeing on the largest scales in the universe? And this is the answer they would have given him. The motions they would have talked about were the motions of the stars in the Milky Way. They didn't have a global view of the Milky Way as being but one of billions of other galaxies yet. So this large, big universe that we just learned about was still unknown. Now, the cosmological principle is one of the formulating principles of cosmology. It's one of the basis of our assumptions that we apply to our study of the universe. Given that little historical background, we'll now see where this came from. The cosmological principle can be stated as follows. This is one of those few statements you really should sort of tattoo on your brain somewhere. It states that the universe is homogeneous and isotropic on the largest scales. Okay? There's three critical pieces to this. Homogeneity, isotropy, and what I mean by large scale. It's basically the distinction between local and how far away do you have to get before the cosmological principle actually turns out to be true. This is the critical assumption that's going to underlie a lot of everything we do. It basically informs how we actually begin to address the questions of the universe and how we begin to interpret those answers. Now there's three pieces here, and let's go through them one by one. The first of these is what I mean by homogeneous. It's another way of stating is that there are no special places in the universe. My place is not privileged in its view of the universe compared to any other place in the universe. And in fact, if I was to sit here in the Milky Way and derive the cosmology, derive the history and structure and distribution of matter in the universe, an alien life form on a galaxy 100 megaparsecs away looking out at the universe would actually see in the large scales the same basic distribution of matter derive the same rate of expansion of the universe, derive the same physics of the universe. So there's nothing special about happening to be in the Milky Way. I could be anywhere within the universe and I would get the same answer to those questions. So that's what homogeneity means in terms of not being a special place. There's nothing about how I formulate the laws of the universe, how I formulate cosmology that has to do with where I happen to be when I do that. That's very important. The second pole is isotropy. It's isotropic. That means there are no special directions. If I do all my studies looking that way off over here to your, to your right, and I study the distribution of matter in the universe, the rate of expansion, blah, 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 all the things that I can observe about the universe, and I swing around 180 degrees and do the exactly the same experiment I should get to within my measurement statistics, the same result. And that'll be true of any direction I pick. So the fact that a large part of the sky is blotted out by the dust and crap in the Milky Way galaxy is not a handicap because it doesn't mean that, well, there's something special about that direction and I just can't see it. It's that cosmic inconvenience there. It doesn't really matter. If I look that way, I get the same answer as looking there, there, or anywhere else. That's what isotropy means. It means even when I pick a location, it doesn't matter what I pick, homogeneity, and once I've picked a location, it doesn't matter which direction I look. I should see the same universe in all directions, and I should measure the same basic properties of that universe. Provided, and this is the proviso, I'm working on large scales. This means I have to average out all the small scale inhomogeneities and anisotropies of the universe. Because, let's face it, if I look this way in the room, 
out towards the back of the room, and I turn around, on the scale of this room, it looks awful different. If I look over here, there's people in black and red sweatshirts in those positions. If I look in the analogous position here, they're wearing an orange sweater and a green jacket. So clearly on the smallest scales, wherever I look, the universe does not look the same. I see different faces as I turn around. I see different things as I turn around in the room. There's more people out there than there are up here. So the distribution of matter is different. So if I pick too small of a scale to do my study of the universe, I'm going to fool myself. So I've got to make my scale get larger and larger until I find that when I crank the scale out further, I stop getting a different answer. So it's one of those problems where you start out local and you begin working your way out and you'll see the answers that you get about the universe change and then all of a sudden it'll stop changing. And that means you finally reach the scale where local weirdnesses have begun to be averaged out. Just like if I look in that direction, I don't see exactly the same galaxies as that way. So I have to get on a scale where that no, those little, little tiny local differences become averaged out. And that's what I mean by the largest scales. So the universe is homogeneous and isotropic, but it only holds if I go to a scale large enough that I average over the actual lumps of stuff, including us, that actually make up the universe. Now, again, let's sort of see how these things work. That was the quick, long introduction. When viewed on the largest scales, what is the, out, what is the manifestation of homogeneity? What I get is, what do I mean is, is not that it looks exactly the same. It's not like I'm in a white room with white walls and I can't tell which way I'm facing if someone turns me around with a blindfold and pulls me off. What homogeneity means, what I measure that's going to be homogeneous, is first of all, the average density of matter around me. How many, how, much, how many grams per cubic centimeter do I find on average around me is not going to be different in any given place. If I measure the amount of density around me averaged over a big enough volume, I'll get a number out. Maybe if I look at the average density of matter, it's maybe 0.3 times 10 to the minus 31 grams per cc, or some number. I'm just going to make up a number. If I then get in a space, super spaceship and blast across the universe and go a gigaparsec away, and in that same big bubble, so I average over all the lumps, I say, what's the density of matter around me? 0.3 times 10 to the minus 31 grams per cc. I would see the same density of matter. I measure the distribution of galaxies, stars, gas, junk around me. What we actually observe is this is actually borne out by observations. The universe is actually pretty smooth. There are lumps, there are voids and filaments on scales of 50 megaparsecs. But once I get out beyond scales of about 100 megaparsecs, the sort of level of lumpiness is the same from one place to another. One place is just as lumpy as another. One place has got just as much matter as another. And relatively speaking, if I go to fairly large scales, the universe actually gets pretty smooth. That level of smoothness, and there's various ways to measure it, is about a part in 100,000. A part in 100,000 smoothness is really, really smooth. It's, it, it, it even gets quite beyond the old proverbial baby's bottom smooth kind of, kind of smoothness. So the universe, even though it looks really lumpy, there's stars, there's galaxies, planets, and people on small scales, when you get out to big scales, that sort of gets averaged across, and you get kind of a part in 100,000 smoothness to it. Now again, this doesn't apply locally. If I look around me, I see the planet Earth, I see a lot of empty space, then I see the sun. I see a huge amount of density around me in this room. I get even more density if I go out and jump into a swimming pool. I'm surrounded by water. So if I look on, the, on scales too small, I start getting into local wackiness, local lumpiness. In fact, the universe looks lumpy on local scales. Matter's 
conglomerated into lumps, lumps, small lumps like planets, bigger lumps like gas giants, bigger lumps like stars, lumps of lumps called galaxies, lumps of lumps of lumps called clusters of galaxies, and so on and so forth. So it really isn't until I get out to long distances that I average across all the lumps. This is a picture of the universe. This is a map in a particular direction. It's actually, this is taken from a survey of the sky in depth. What you see in this pie wedge here is this is distance. The Earth and the Milky Way and the local group are sitting down here at the apex of this cone. As I move outwards to the outer part of this cone or wedge, I'm getting further and further away. Now, if I get beyond a certain distance, the galaxies become too faint to measure their distance. And so that's why you get this sort of fading out here towards the outside of this cone. It's not because the galaxies, in fact, are thinning out, but because I can only see the very brightest galaxies here. So I have to kind of restrict my attention to the bottom half of the cone here, where my survey is, relatively statistically speaking, complete. I'm counting down to the certain total brightness of galaxy. Beyond this level, it's just, this is way, way far away. And here's the scale, is 100 megaparsecs. So even the scale of the local group is barely the size of a pixel on this display. So this is really big scales. So if I restrict my, my attention to this, this is the Australian 2G, 2FGRS survey, as it's called. It's basically a two-dimensional two redshift survey in section of the Southern Hemisphere. And I pick a square within the region where I'm pretty sure I'm completely counting up the galaxies. And I see this kind of voids and filaments. And I say, within that volume, what's the number of galaxies per 100 cubic megaparsecs? I get a number out. And then I move to another place over here at about the same distance away. So I'm looking back to the same amount of look back time and time. And I count out the number of galaxies inside that volume. And I get the same number to within statistical errors. Because I'm counting entities, you know, you can't ha count half a galaxy. And so this box here that I've drawn is 100 megaparsecs on the side. So this is a demonstration, this map, even though it looks lumpy, on scales of tens of megaparsecs. Once I get out to 100 megaparsec scales, if I walk that box around and just count up the number of galaxies in the box, I'll get the same number. Now, some of them are going to be in, in filaments, and some of them are going to be just sort of spattered very sparsely between the voids. But if I add up the number of galaxies inside that 100 megaparsec square box, I'll get the same number, again, to within my ability to count galaxies. So that's a demonstration of homogeneity. Basically, no matter where I pick to go, I'll get the same answer, provided I use a big enough box that I average out over the largest scale structures. Now, isotropy is the statement that when I view the universe on the very largest scales, two things happen. One is that the universe looks the same to all observers. So if I made that pie wedge diagram here around me in the Milky Way, and Xanax the alien in a galaxy 100 megaparsecs away makes exactly the same analogous map, we would observe the same basic structures. We wouldn't agree on the details on the smallest scales, but we would agree on the large-scale structure, the general scale of the filaments, the general sizes and content of the voids, and so forth. Furthermore, if I only made my map that way, and Xanax the alien made his observations that way, we'd still agree on the answer. Furthermore, I'd agree if I look that way and then turn around my telescope and the other half of the year do that side of the sky. I'll get the same answer. Now, one of the reasons why we do different sides of the sky is because the Earth is orbiting the sun, and it's only night for half of the day. So we tend to do two sides to try to see if there are anisotropies, because finding an anisotropy would be very, very interesting on large scales.
because it would break the cosmological principle. So it isn't a matter of faith. I don't just simply believe in the cosmological principle. Belief doesn't play a role. I don't believe anything. I test everything. Trust but verify, basically. So we've done this experiment in both directions. But again, on the largest scales is the proviso. Locally speaking, the universe does not look the same. If I look out this way, I see different people than if I look that way, and I don't see any people when I look that way. My scale's too small. But if I expanded my scale around the Earth, so that now the scale I was looking at was how many people do I see per square meter or square kilometer, I actually would measure roughly the same number of people per square kilometer. Yeah, there are these lumps the sizes of continents, but if I make a big enough box, I average out over the continents. So there is even an isotropy of people. If I want to now make my test particles that dot out the structure of the universe, not people, but galaxies, I have to go out to scales of about 100 megaparsecs. Now, I showed you one half of this wedge diagram. In fact, the other picture was this half of the wedge. But in fact, the 2D Galaxy Redshift Survey also did this half of the sky. Now, these gaps that you see here and this big gap here happens to be where the Milky Way blocks our view or various clouds of dust and gas block our view. They block our view by making objects, they absorb light from behind so that galaxies sitting behind a dust cloud are fainter than they would appear and so they drop below our ability to observe. So we have these zones of avoidance. But what I get are two completely opposite sides of the sky. They're literally 180 degrees apart. And what I see is I see a sort of, on this side, which is the other wedge, looking towards these, basically this is looking in the direction of the sort of spring and summer sky from the north. Actually, this would be the winter and fall sky from the south, southern hemisphere. No, this was done in Australia. I see sort of foamy structures, voids, and filaments. When I look in this direction, I get a few more galaxies, but in fact, I would see the same number of galaxies per unit volume. I see that the voids are roughly 50, 60 megaparsecs in diameter. I see exactly 50, 60 megaparsec diameter voids. I find on average five galaxies inside of a void per certain unit of volume. I see that on both sides. I see the filaments with a certain density, same on both sides. So if I'd only mapped this direction and not mapped the other direction, I would get the same result. Again, it's kind of a, this is kind of a, the best map I can give you. This is back from 2002. There's actually, the problem with this is there's actually a depth to this map. It's wedged out of the paper, and they averaged along. I could not find a version of this map where they used exactly the same thickness of the wedge. That's why you get a little bit more darkness over here than here. But take my word for it, when you do the study out on 100 megaparsec or larger scales, you do, in fact, see the same universe in both directions. You know, different individual galaxies, but if you just treat galaxy like an atom, it's an indivisible, you know, a sort of an indistinguishable item, the number of galaxies is the same per volume and so forth when I look out in two completely opposite directions on the sky. Homogeneity and isotropy holds on the large scale. So we've established a cosmological principle. If you apply that cosmological principle to relativity, as Einstein did, he got a real surprise. What he found out was that space-time of the universe could not be static. It couldn't be sitting still and unchanging. It, in fact, was dynamic. It was going to be either expanding or contracting. Because basically, the universe is filled with matter. All that matter calls to other matter across space, or more precisely, all that matter bends and curves space-time around it, and the other matter feels the curvature due to all the other matter combined. 
There's a mutual, Newton would have called a mutual gravitational force. So if I just simply sprinkled an empty universe full of little, you know, three centimeter diameter ball bearings made of steel and spread them out uniformly but made them static, not moving with respect to each other, the slightest little tickle of one of them setting one into motion, it would feel the gravity force of all the others, or as Einstein would say, it would feel the space-time curvature of all the others, and it would start moving. As it started moving, the others would start moving, and in fact, the whole system would suddenly begin to collapse in on itself, or if I gave them enough speed outwards, they would all start expanding away. What Einstein realized is that they drag space and time with it. Either drag it out, expanding, or contracting, depending upon which way you do it. So as formulated, the universe basically was, essentially, should be in motion. It wasn't possible to make it static in the way in which he formulated general relativity. Now, of course, Einstein said, well, what do people actually see? What is the universe actually doing? So he went out in 1917 and he asked the astronomers around him, well, what is? Is there a general motion to the universe? Is the universe look like it's expanding and contracting? Now, what most of the astronomers thought of at the time was the stars, because they thought of the Milky Way as the whole universe, and maybe these occasional spiral nebulae. And they said, well, you know, not really. There really is no general motion. There's kind of some buzzing around, but it's neither expanding nor contracting in an obvious way. We don't see all the stars systematically moving away from us, as would be the case of expansion, or all the stars moving towards us, as would be the case if the universe was collapsing in on itself slowly. Now, of course, the problem was they were looking on, they were only considering very small scales because the largest scales they could measure were measured in kiloparsecs at the time. They really had no way technologically yet to measure out on scales where you really were out in the regime that the cosmological principle held. But they didn't know that yet. So the basic conclusion was the universe isn't doing anything. It's neither expanding nor contracting. This led Einstein to a problem. His general relativity predicted the universe was expanding or contracting. He wasn't willing to go with that to its end. He said, well, I've got to find some way to make the universe, in my model picture, stop expanding or stop contracting. So what he did was he modified the equations of general relativity. He added a new term to it, which he called the cosmological constant, and which got given the Greek letter, the Greek capital letter lambda. Lambda is a made-up term. There's no physics behind this at all except a desire to make the equations of general relativity as applied to cosmology stop expanding or contracting. What it is, is, gravity, is lambda is an anti-gravity force, if you will. It's not really a force per se, because there is no forces in, in relativity, but it's kind of a repulsive gravitational-like term that arises from empty space occurs only on large scales, so I can't measure it in the laboratory, but it would apply on the large scales that Einstein was thinking of for cosmology, and would work in such a way that the mutual gravity, which wanted to pull everything down and collapse, it would push out and exactly balance. If you want to think about it as like pressure in a hydrostatic equilibrium situation, the physics is very close. It does look kind of like a pressure when it's put into the equations, in the, in the equations that describe the physics of space-time except it's kind of a weird, ghostly pressure of the vacuum. So again, think of gravity as kind of like wanting to collapse down and some kind of ghostly space-time pressure wanting to put out, but that pressure is not from something, it's from vacuum, and he called it lambda. It counteracted the effects of gravity. Now, 
from laboratory observations, if you went and did the best observations of gravity, there was absolutely no evidence whatsoever for the existence of a cosmological constant. No evidence for a physical lambda that you had to invoke. It was totally made up. And it was made up for just one reason. He wanted to stop space and time from expanding and contracting. Fortunately, it was a huge mistake. The reason was because even though Einstein discussed the matter with physicists in Europe at the time, in particular physicists working in Zurich and Switzerland, at the time in the United States, work was going on which was slowly eroding this view. In particular, a man by the name of Vesto Slifer, he was an astronomer who worked at the Lowell Observatory outside Flagstaff, Arizona. This is one of those oddities of, of history. There are a number of observatories that are built by universities, but before nowadays, they're built by universities or consortiums of universities or even the U.S. National Science Foundation or consortiums of nations. But in the early parts of the 20th century and the late 19th century, observatories were private. They were built by rich people with lots of money and a fascination with astronomy. And one of those was a guy named Percival Lowell. He was a member of the famous Lowell family of Boston, Basically, the, the idea that the uh, Lowells were among the wealthiest people. In fact, Lowell, Massachusetts, the big mill town was named for them. They got their money from, from basically cotton milling and wool milling. One of the Lowell scions was fascinated by astronomy, and particularly was fascinated by the planet Mars and the observation that maybe Mars had canals. And he wasn't going to get a good view of it from Boston, so he bought some land on a place out in Flagstaff, Arizona, which was then the, completely the middle of nowhere. And on a place he called Mars Hill, he erected an observatory with large refracting telescopes where he could observe the sky. Lowell Observatory, even though Lowell's idea and Percival Lowell himself was a little off in the head in the regards to his fascination and obsession with Mars, he did build some of the best astronomical instruments or have built for him with his money, some of the best astronomical instruments of the time, and hired a number of astronomers who later on would go on to some very significant discoveries. One of these is that Lowell was interested in the nature of the spiral nebulae because they might be forming solar systems. And so he set a new assistant, a man by the name of Vesta Slifer, on the job of taking spectra of the spiral nebulae and measuring their radial velocities, just like you would measure proper motions and radial velocities for stars to figure out where they were in the Milky Way. The idea was if you did the same thing for the spiral nebulae, you could find a way to measure their distances. The results of this was... Spiral galaxies are actually pretty faint. They're really faint, so it's really hard to get a spectrum. You actually have to expose a photographic plate for many nights at a time. Nowadays, we can snap them off in about five minutes. But in those days, you had to work really hard. And they could only do about 25 of the brightest spiral galaxies. And what Slifer found really shocked him. 21 out of the 25 spirals he looked at had a systematic radial velocity away from the Earth. They had a redshift. They were moving away from us, and some of them had a redshift so big, their spectral lines were shifted towards red wavelengths at the velocities implied by the Doppler effect were in excess of 2,000 kilometers a second. That's many times larger than the escape velocity inferred for the Milky Way at the time. In fact, it's even bigger than the escape speed for the Milky Way now with the modern model. Now, if you just got one or two, what you expected to see is if you look out at the stars around us, there are just as many stars moving away from me as moving towards me as not moving at all. There's no systematic expansion, contraction, or anything. So if I went out and just took 100 random stars around the sky, I would expect 50 to be redshifted and 50 to be blue shifted. And together, there's no systematic motion.
Furthermore, the typical redshifts of stars and objects in our own Milky Way are measured in tens of kilometers a second at most, maybe a couple of funky 100 kilometer stars. Some very high velocity things, but high velocities 500 kilometers a second. Now you go out and look at 25 galaxies, and 21 of them are all moving away at hundreds of kilometers a second, some of them up to thousands of kilometers a second. It stands out as something weird. This was an an observation that people didn't understand, but the spiral nebulae stood out from stars. They had a systematic redshift for the most part. In fact, this observation in 1920 was one of the things that Haber-Curtis used to try to argue that the spiral nebulae were island universes. Because if they had these kinds of radio velocities and in the Milky Way, they were all running away from the Earth, and that made no sense. Why would they know where the Earth was to run away from it? Well, the answer, of course, is they're not running away from the Earth. They're part of the expansion of the universe. In the 1920s, that's the observational side. In the 1920s, a, ma- a Dutch astronomer by the name of Willem de Sitter went into Einstein's equations and found that there was an error in Einstein's mathematics. When he figured out to put the lambda term in and stabilize the universe against expansion or contraction, he made a mistake in the arithmetic. And when de Sitter came back and corrected that mistake, he found that indeed the lambda term would stabilize and keep the universe and keep it from expanding or contracting, but that the solution was not stable. It was unstable. It was like a pencil balanced on its point. You just went any direction on it and the pencil would fall. Whereas stable would mean that once you set it up, no matter how you perturb the system, no matter how you tap it in any way, it won't change. But Einstein's formulation with lambda made the universe as unstable as a house of cards. So if you just simply perturbed it one way or another, either it would explosively expand or or implosively contract. Furthermore, two more more scientists, um, a man by the name of Friedman in Germany and Lemaitre in Belgium, showed that if you just took out this lambda term completely and put in the straight general relativity equations that Einstein had started with, the universe would in fact be systematically expanding. And oh, look. Isn't that what Slifer's seeing? In other words, they made the prediction that GR predicts an expanding universe. Edwin Hubble, finally in 1929, this is a story we're going to tell tomorrow, established the cosmic rate of expansion. He was able to get, using bigger telescope on, on Mount Wilson than the very small telescopes that Slifer had available to him at Lowell, measured the radial velocities for larger and larger numbers of galaxies, plus was able to measure the distances to those galaxies in various ways. And when he put that data together, showed, in fact, the universe was in a state of systematic expansion if you look at the galaxies in the universe, not at the stars in the Milky Way, because the stars in the Milky Way are gravitationally bound to the Milky Way, and they do not participate in the expansion of space-time. We're not getting further away from other stars as space-time expands because our gravity is big enough to counteract that expansion locally. And there's where the locality, localism, is, is very, very important to understanding cosmology. I have to get away from the local gravity well to see the expansion of the universe. And that's what Hubble finally did by 1929. Here's some of the players in this particular game. Vesto Slifer, Willem de Sitter, and George Lemaitre. George Lemaitre was actually he was a Catholic um, priest, a monk in Belgium. Edwin Hubble, 
Alexander Friedman, who was a, a Soviet mathematician, and of course Albert Einstein. Very interesting group of people. Georges Lemaitre, in fact, was one of the people who was able to first elucidate something we now know as the Big Bang, although he didn't actually apply that name to it. That didn't get applied until the 1950s. And in fact, this is one of the reasons Lemaitre's work is one of the reasons why when it was understood that the universe was expanding and actually expanding away from an initial point of beginning many billions of years ago, that that was very quickly accepted by the Catholic Church because one of their own mathematicians and physicists was involved in this. A very different flip side compared to what went on in the 1630s when Galileo was prosecuted for basically espousing Copernicanism. They learned their lesson. It just took them 300 years. Now, the current state of the art in this argument of Einstein's universe is that Einstein's guess about homogeneity and isotropy on the large scales in the universe was extremely ahead of his time and very, very astute. It was a brilliant guess. There was no reason from physics to assume that that was necessarily true, but he said if this was true, what would the consequences be? It was an absolutely brilliant guess. The thing is, modern observations, as we've seen some of these, bear out the large-scale isotropy and homogeneity. The difference is, is that in 1917, those large scales were inaccessible technologically. We didn't know how to measure distances on the very largest scales like we do now, at least to the accuracy needed to confirm both isotropy and homogeneity. There's two basic lines of observational evidence that go into this. One is the large-scale surveys of galaxies that we've already seen. They give us the large-scale structures, the voids and filaments, and they allow us to measure distances out very, very far and see that once we get beyond a scale of about 100 or 200 megaparsecs, homogeneity and isotropy rule. Finally, the most spectacular set of observations are the observations of the most distant structures in the universe, the so-called cosmic microwave background that we're going to meet in some detail next week. This is a large-scale map of the universe taken by the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. Again, it's very similar to the map I showed from Australia, but it shows that on the largest scales, the universe has the same basic structure, not only on all scales, but in all directions as well. So there's no special place in the universe. The center of the wedge here is just because that's accidentally where we are. This spectacular map is a view of the entire sky on the very largest scales. The difference between a dark point and a red point is a difference of a part in 100,000. So this is actually a very smooth map, but I've had to amp the contrast way up so you could actually see the roughness of the universe in the scale of what's called the cosmic background radiation. This is the relic radiation left over from the Big Bang. What we see is if I look over in this direction, or this direction, or this direction, I see the same basic range of scales, I see the same basic range of structure. So even though I've mapped it across the entire sky, and there are cold and hot lumps in this background, when I average it all out, it all basically confirms isotropy and homogeneity. Now as for the cosmological constant, in modern cosmology, lambda has actually made a comeback. It was originally Einstein's greatest blunder, but in fact, it, it actually turned out to be also an astute guess. We now have a reason for looking at a lambda. It's actually called the vacuum energy of space. It's a prediction of certain models of quantum mechanics for the physics of the very small. Quantum mechanics didn't exist in 1917. It's an invention of the mid-20th century. And it acts just like I described it, as an extra pressure trying to inflate the universe, trying to inflate space-time a little bit. The distinction is here is that lambda does not act to stabilize and stop the collapse or expansion of the universe. It, in fact, accelerates that expansion. And there's been increasing observational evidence over the last 10 years that lambda is, in fact, probably very real. So 
This may have been Einstein's greatest blunder, but Einstein seems to have had the last word. And we'll see you all tomorrow. Your test will be available up here in front.